Hi, and welcome to the Wellness Champions Network podcast. I'm Sarah McGuinness. The Wellness Champions Network is a group of leaders from around New Zealand who are passionate about creating workplaces that thrive. We catch up on a regular basis to share our knowledge and learn from others on how to enable people to work well and live well. In this podcast, we catch up with Dr. Amy Silver about psychological safety in the workplace and how fear and habit can restrict growth. Amy shares tips on how to break down those barriers and truly allow people to be their best at work. So psychological safety, um, it actually does mean different things to different people, which makes it very confusing. But in its entirety, where it came from was a guy called um, Khan. And he, he did some stuff on workplace engagement back in the 90s. Um, and he looked at what it, what what he used the, the term for was to express where we were bringing our whole self to work. So when we bring our whole self to work, that's what he defined as engaged um, when people were engaged. And so he he described psychological safety as this concept of us being able to bring our whole self to work. And then over the years, that, that definition has changed a little bit and morphed. And depending on whether you're coming in with a mental health um, context or an engagement context or a leadership context, um, the term sort of is described differently. But essentially, it's us being able to be ourselves when we're at work so that we can pull on... Um, all, all of ourselves, all, all that's going on for us in our brain and bring that to the table without fear of judgment, without fear of being um, excluded, without fear of being ridiculed, um, any of those kind of horrible things that, that can happen that may act as a screener to what it is that we bring to the table when we're at work. So that's, that's in, its really, in its really mild forms. It's things like, um, you know, being, you know, having a hand up, when you're talking, you know, implying sort of stop, stop talking now, we've had enough of what you're saying, um, or just not listening to somebody, you know, in its more extreme contexts, it's, it's quite toxic, it's damaging, um, it can be really cruel, um, and can be sort of categorized within the bullying sort of um, world, and, um, and anything in between, essentially, and, and um, but, but yeah, in its entirety, it basically means can we be ourselves when we come to work? And I imagine, you know, for a lot of people that would be quite challenging, you know, because, you know, and traditionally, particularly kind of in the 90s, there was this whole thing about, you know, having a work image and leaving ourselves at home, you know, at the door. And in your work now, do you see that, that changing now? People are it's sort of more accepting to bring the whole of yourself to work? I think there's definite pockets of things that are making a massive difference. Um, you know, there's a whole diversity sort of uh, agenda or a whole... Um, a piece on, um, you know, uh, bringing the outside you and your interests and your values into work. Um, I think that it's almost like we've got the concept cognitively, but actually getting it behaviorally into our habits at work is quite difficult. We're still really bound to um, the need to have hierarchy. So hierarchy is one of those things that can interfere with what we bring of ourselves to work um, and yet we're not quite ready to get rid of that. Um, so I see, I work with a lot of organisations that are going through transformation, although that's apparently 90% of our organisations now. 
um, or, or any sort of change process. And, and I see it infinitely at work, this kind of um, screening that we do that limits what we can contribute. Um, and I think, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but I think there's, a, there's different elements to why that happens. I think some of it is societal and habitual and we've just kind of, you know, almost generational. We've sort of, we've learned to section off ourselves and sort of only present the bit that we want to present. Um, and that's going to take quite a long time um, for us to shift on because it requires risk to sort of, um, to let your guards down completely or go against hierarchy or say something um, that's different from the norm or different from it being expected. That's kind of personal. Um, and then there's also sort of what, it, what is the environment, what are, what are we doing for each other to increase safety and security. Um, I think, it, you know, just going back to your question, I think it's a little bit about the difference between inclusion and um, diversity. Um, so diversity being... Um, you know, um, equality, but um, inclusion being involvement and, and actually sort of asking people to, you know, stretching over and into um, inclusion. So um, th those are all concepts that I think are becoming more familiar, certainly stuff that's being talked about a lot. We know the implications of not getting this right. Um, but behaviourally, I think we're probably a little bit slower. And I was interested in that from a mental health perspective, and I sort of briefed Amy on this before we spoke about how, I mean, certainly Australia has a, an, um, an interest and there's a lot of work there around mental health, but I was saying in New Zealand, it's, I, I would almost say it's a buzzword here, you know, we have it from all directions in terms of health and safety, from the government, from industry and, um, and even local communities. And um, just this morning, actually, I was meeting with a local Gisborne contact and, and she had some fresh statistics around the mental health in our local community. And it's just staggering and it, it's terrible. I can't think about, you know, another word for it. It's really, really tough. And so I was interested in what you're talking about in terms of that safety at work and, and being able to have those conversations that sometimes make you feel a little bit vulnerable. And I wondered if you could touch on that, sort of that mental health aspect and, and the safety side. Yeah, well, it, it's important in the safety side, in the physical and the, and the mental health space. So, in the physical side, um, you know, currently, uh, I'm going to use Australian stats, um, but you know, it's, it's about sixty billion dollars um, a year is spent on compensations for physical stuff, and um, about fifty percent of those claims um, say that stress and fatigue um, are part of that so it's it really does impact on the physical safety of, of people at work um, and for mental health look at as you say the stats are ridiculous and depending on kind of the research that you're looking at it I mean it's it's insane so excuse the pun but it's very um, there is a lot of problems created by our workplace and about six percent of all serious workplace compensation claims are due to work pressures um, so it's, um, it's a huge issue. There's about 21% of the population are currently um, experiencing work pressure. Um, and anywhere between, depending on the study that you look at, 11 billion and $36 billion as, is currently being um, wasted on presenteeism or absenteeism relating to uh, mental health um, and, uh, and that's just extraordinary. I know that in New Zealand, because I looked it up this morning, um, it's about $1,500 uh, $1, per person 
the average organisation can expect to be losing to presenteeism per year. So $1,500. So you can do the maths for your own organisation. But, um, you know, the implications are, are huge. And um, in Australia, we've got a, our, our society, the Psychological Society, the Australian Psychological Society has actually put out a, um, a statement saying that workplaces need to take responsibility for this. Um, they need to have things in place, not just to um, care for people, um, but in terms of impact of productivity and efficiency for the organisations and for, for our society. So, um, yeah, it's a massive cost, uh, both, both, both to our physical um, and mental safety. And that's obviously important on a, on a human level, uh, but the, the results are showing how crucial this is to efficiency, um, productivity, and even engagement. I mean, you, you probably all know, but the engagement scores are pretty diabolical. Um, probably three out of 10 people are highly engaged at work. So, you know, seven tenths of us aren't, um, and that's a lot of brain power, um, a lot of wasted, um, energy that we could be tapping into so as a resource for our future um, society of, of us kind of doing and making life better uh, we're just wasting wasting so much stuff and then I know you've you've had legal stuff um, recently um, here we've had um, just in Victoria where I'm based um, we've had 40 uh, more than 40 now um, legal cases brought against um, employers um, on on uh, work pressure or stress created by work, um, so it's now sort of it's a legal thing. I mean, interpersonal barriers to return to work seem to be more important than physical, um, and so you know everything is pointing to the fact that this is a, a crisis um, of a um, humanistic, but also. Um, for productivity and efficiency for our organisations. And, and you, you mentioned that term earlier, that, that sort of interpersonal barriers, and, and some of those, as you said, were, were behaviours, whether it was the hand that goes up to stop conversation or, or whether it's a more toxic culture, and I guess that's around, is it sort of group think or group pressure or those sorts of things. But, you know, are, are there uh, instances that you can share or, or insights around if people were looking around their workplace and they would notice these behaviours, what, you know, what, what sorts of things come up? Yeah, look, essentially, we're, you know, um, just, to, just to tell you a little bit about the, the program that I run, it's easiest, we, we run sort of cultural programs that sort of try and shift um, this, uh, this, this climate of psychological safety. But it's easiest to sort of think about it in a, in a, from a team's perspective. So when you're listening to this, just imagine the team that you're in, any of the teams that you're in, whether it's upwards, sideways, downwards, whatever, um, what, you know, a, a collection of people, it's easiest to sort of imagine it um, from that perspective. But, um, yeah, it, the things that you see in a team that indicate that um, there is an issue is, and I sort of think about this like it's sort of, it's like the canary in the mine kind of thing, you know, like uh, if it's really toxic and there's some really bullying person or somebody that's really preventing people from being comfortable enough to speak that sort of stands out and you and you know hopefully you you should be in tune with that and aware of it and, and conscious of what what the plan is um 
it's the very subtle things that that seem to uh, I seem to see quite a lot, which is that people aren't having courageous conversations. So the conversation in a meeting looks quite productive. Uh, but after the meeting, the real conversations happen or there's blocks in actually trying to uh, con- try to carry out the things that have been spoken about in the meetings because there's a little bit of unspoken. Um, there's sort of elephants in the room that aren't being kind of really talked about. Everybody's dealing with um, with sort of like an under par kind of conversation in the room because people are, whether it's uh, frightened of combat, you know, so there's an avoidance, um, or whether there's some sort of habit of being really polite. I see a lot of that, a lot of polite conversations where actually the, uh, everyone's being very nice to each other. Um, but that leads to either a little bit of complacency um, or a little bit of avoidance of, of, of the tricky stuff. So um, that's where I see it is um, either that there's a bit of combat, um, there's a little bit of avoidance, there's a little bit of polite conversation. Um, and, and what we want to see is courageous conversations where people can be clear about what it is that they're saying, clear about what, what it is that they're going to do. They can hold each other to account on both the behaviours but also the content of what they're saying, that there's an integrity that's, that's present. Um, and so the little things that you see is people talking over each other, hands up, sort of, uh, you know, if you did a time check on who, on, on who has air time, does everybody have some? And that's not that everybody needs to have equal time because we all communicate differently. But is there a level of inclusion of everybody? Is there an offer for um, for somebody to include themselves into the conversation? Where where is the energy being spent? So um, those are the little things that I see. You know, people aren't listening to each other. People are um, assuming. Uh, people aren't curious. People um, aren't kind. Um, so you know you're looking for sort of small micro measures um, and as I say I think those are the canary in the in the mind moments where you just kind of go okay is this symptomatic of something else that's wider so is that representative of the culture in the organization that the organization tolerate people being unkind that the organization tolerate leaders um, taking up more airtime that the uh, that the organization tolerates um, uh, people not being included or not taking accountability for things. And I, I was interested in that thinking too about even the difference between the New Zealand and Australian culture. I do recall, you know, coming from New Zealand and you might know we, we're very good at, at dancing around the bush and I remember going to Australia and thinking, oh my God, people say that to each other? Oh my God. <laughs> so, so even do you notice that even within the organisations that you work with that there are there are different pockets of culture or do you notice that particularly between different um, you know, national groups or, or those sorts of things? Or, or is there a, a, a general level of, sort of psychological safety that we're all aiming for? Uh, I, think it's, I think it's something that we all need to be striving for all the time. It's so easy for us to look over there and kind of go, oh, they haven't made people feel included or they haven't, you know, they do this. And it's just so easy for us. And I think, um, look, you guys, I'm just going to make a massive assumption that you guys are already, you know, on board with this. And so, you know, I would sort of say we're all leaders in this. And so we all need to constantly 
be aware that we're all rubbish at it. You know, we make mistakes all the time. We all exclude meaning, you know, without intention. And that's the whole job of being a leader is to become more and more aware of how rubbish you are so that you can change it and do something different. And, um, and, and so I think we are all and should all be on the mission to constantly be aware of the biases that create um, an environment that doesn't allow people to be their best, including ourselves. So, you know, it doesn't take much for me to lose all my power. You know, if I walk into a room that triggers my, um, my less than best self, I can find myself suddenly uh, in a position where I don't feel like I've got anything to contribute. Well, that's my issue and I need to do something about that. So, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a something that we all need to work on. It's something that um, I think, you know, starts from within. And for other people, I think it's an awareness thing. It's an it's a education piece. It's a, um, a buy-in piece. It's no longer just because we're nice people. It's actually got a really strong business metric. Um, and so depending on who I'm talking to, um, I'll alter the content or the direction that I'm coming from. So if I'm talking to leaders, um, this sounds really bad, but to, to, you know, if I'm talking to a group of people who don't particularly value humanistic principles, then I just talk about money. Um, and the implications on engagement and productivity. And it doesn't matter to me if they, that they get buy-in because the outcome is still the same. So um, I'm, I'm just looking to you know, constantly help people engage with the concept and take responsibility for it. Um, you know, take responsibility for each other, you know, that I, that I create an environment which allows you to be the best version of you. Or I, or I don't, you know, I do something that's, that, that shuts you down. Can I turn it on its head now and say, are there examples of organisations you've seen where they do it really well, and, you know, that, that really stand out to you? Yeah, there are. And um, it, 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 these aren't the organisations that necessarily have, um, you know, all the swanky fixtures and fittings and, you know, they're not doing really expensive surveys and they're not doing... I don't know. They're not. They're not always the sort of the the companies that you would imagine do, and I think it's because it just comes down to being 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 human. And there are. Uh, so I work with big organisations. I work with small. I, and I I said this to you last the last time we spoke. But I think of safety as viral, right? So it's impossible to do a huge cultural transformation piece and just go be safe, everybody you know treat everybody nicely it just doesn't work you know it just doesn't work it's not it's so much more visceral than that and we have to do it in a viral way so team by team by team by team and that's how we do our cultural programs is we start with a team uh you know luckily for us the program is so beautiful and everybody loves it that um you know it kind of has offshoots and that person takes it into their team and their team and their team and then we end up sort of with this multiplication effort and then suddenly it's just the norm. Organisations or uh, teams that do particularly well are those that are aware that if their people do not understand how to be behaviourally flexible, the organisation is limited in its future. So behavioural flexibility has to be 
um, central to the organization's goals. And what I mean by that is they have to understand that if everybody stays doing the same thing now um, as they are doing now in the future, their organization will fail because the world is changing so far. Um, I don't know if the word VUCA is particularly um, common, is it? Hands up if anybody knows what VUCA means. Yeah, so, okay, so VUCA is, a, is an acronym that's short for um, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. Um, and that term, volatile, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, it, um, is, is it, this VUCA sort of environment is now being used to describe where we are at work right now. Right, that's that's what our work systems are like, and I I, I I I imagine that most of you would be experiencing some sort of that complexity going on, ambiguous. Things are changing so fast. We can't have five-year plans anymore because we don't know what five years is going to look like for the world. Um, it's just changing too fast, and so um, what's required for a successful organisation is the ability. We we predict it. So what we have have people that are able to move, be flexible, um, shift what they're doing, shift how they're having conversations, shifting the barriers. You know, people who are locked down, that's my job, that's what I do, uh, will not be part of the future. And organisations that say, this is what we do, we don't do anything else, will we'll get too rigid and stuck. And so uh, this this idea of the future of work is that we are behaviorally flexible. We can do lots of different things. So back to your question, um, organizations that do well with this are organizations that understand that for people to be behaviorally flexible, they have to feel safe. If you, can, if you don't feel safe, you will not be able to flex your behavior. You will never do anything different from what you're currently doing if you don't feel safe. Um, and so, it, as I said at the beginning, I think that the organizations that choose to work with me are those that are going through some sort of transformation, whether it's something like Agile or um, some sort of new process that they're bringing in, um, some sort of big mission that they've got for, for the organization or for the people, that, and they realize there's a plan and they realize that behavioral flexibility of the people that they work with is the key to getting this moving. Those are the organizations that, that do well. And those are the organizations that embrace this because um, they recognize that fear um, or anxiety or an unhealthy psychosocial um, environment or poor interpersonal trust will destroy any ambitions to change yeah and I could I was almost thinking too in terms of the the, the, the specific well-being picture it's almost that difference isn't we, we always use this term it's almost the difference between offering a, a fruit bowl and hoping that engagement will change and actually doing something meaningful that enables people to flourish at work in the way that we hope they might uh, you know reach their potential yeah yeah, 100%, yeah. I think the reality is just this is really hard and it's not a, it's not a quick fix. Um, it, this is actually calling on all of us to take responsibility and ownership for, um, it takes one person to do one difficult thing, one bad thing rather, um, to destroy um, safety. 
So um, it's something that we all need to take it seriously. And, um, you know, like, like most things, it's like we will get it wrong sometimes and it's sort of what's our, what's our repair function like. Um, you know, how, how capable are we to kind of go, hey, I feel like I cut you off in that meeting. You know, it's because I was really, really excited about, you know, telling you about this, that and the other. But, you know, I shouldn't have done that. Um, what I'm going to try and do is, um, is increase my pauses before I speak um, to try and come. We're not very good at that sort of, you know, clarity and, and um, accountability on behaviours. You know, we don't really like to talk about it. Um, and so it remains sort of something that we brush under the carpet and tolerate and, um, yeah, but trust, trust internally is, 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 is a massive um, leader. I know we've been talking about mental health, but sort of taking it into the more collective intelligence space where, you know, we are able to have a high-functioning team. Um, trust is the biggest factor that, that's going to contribute to that. So um, say that we've got seven people in a team can't do the maths off the top of my head but you know you're looking at each dyad you know m you know my my trust to you sarah sarah your trust to me uh jamie my trust to you your trust to me uh trish your trust to you my trust to you your trust to me We're, it's like different sets of dyads like how are we all doing with that pretty rubbish most of the time um, so how do we actually build on it how do we take responsibility for it how do we measure it how do we uh, bring that into a conversation um and in our program, that's what we do, that we spend a day um, with the team doing trust-based trust work. And it's not walking on hot coals, but it's, it's actually interpersonal trust. So trying to get to know each other on a humanistic level because we know that um, we can triple the strength of trust um, doing um, exercises that build on interpersonal relationships. And that means that we make decisions quicker. It means we... Um, implement with greater quality and we do all that with less angst you know so everybody's happier if you were going to give some tips to the um, the wide range of organizations that we've got here we have got lots of different industries across you know government and private sector and community sector as well what what are kind of maybe like the top five tips or some things they could they could take away to, to do immediately or or something like that look I think this is this is a really complex um, area and it's and it's far-reaching right so um, as I said if, if you are working if you imagine yourself as in a team right and the, the things that need to happen in a team and there's there's three things so not five there's three um, <laughs> but, but there's lots of offshoots to those and I'm more than happy to, to talk to anybody afterwards if anybody wants to um, go into further detail about them but there's there's three things that need to happen to build um, a collective intelligence in the room and and as I said remember that this is collective intelligence is the result of a safe environment so if, if everybody is feeling that they can bring their whole self to work then we get diversity of thought we get innovation we get new new ideas we get um, people being able to kind of go but that seems like a silly idea we, we pull out risks we um, we are able to say no, we are able to not put void or turn away from difficult things. So that's, that's what we're looking for in a high-performing team, is a team that's capable of, um, of building on each other. Um, and I, I use the analogy of, of a cake, you know, the, the, the individual ingredients are there in a team. You know, more often than not, the 
you know, there's there's bright people doing good things in a team. They make up a team. They're the ingredients of the cake, but the collective intelligence is sort of the how we're putting those things together and are we making them rise? Are we making them sort of, uh, you know, into this delicious cake or does it does it go flat? You know, and the, the difference between a flat cake and a beautiful cake um, is baking agent and psychological safety is the baking agent. Oh, good metaphor. I like that. <laughs> Thank you. Took me a long time to explain it that time. I think I went around the houses a bit. But anyway, the the it's it's what makes the team function in a, in a in a high capacity. So when you're looking at a team, and as I said, I would I would start when you're thinking about this, reflecting on your own team, just because that's the easy to, um, to focus on and I get that we want to think widely about the organization but this will give you the, the information that you need so in a particular team there's three things that you need to do to increase the safety the first is that everybody around the table needs to know why they're there and what I mean is they need to have a collective goal so um, the collective goal must be of equal or more important than any of the individual goals. So if my goal is, you know, to take responsibility for this pocket of um, of contribution, the collective goal has to be bigger than my care of that individual goal. Does that make sense? We have to have something that pulls us together. So in the one day thing that I do, you know, the very first question that I ask a team is, um, are you a team or are you a group? Um, and that's a really difficult concept for people, some teams, to to work out. And if they're a team, obviously, then they need to have a collective goal. And do they know what that is? Do they care enough about it to sacrifice any of their individual goals to achieve? Um, so that that's the first point, is it, is it clear what the collective goal is? And do the individuals in it care about it more or equal to any of their individual goals? Um, the second thing is is um, is self leadership. Um, do the people around the table, and I'm using the word table metaphorically, just you know, a team. Do the people around the table um, understand how to trigger their best self? Do they understand what happens to them when they're triggered in their worst place? So when they retreat, or when they get combative, or when they get um, complacent, or when they get frightened do they understand does each person have a level of and this is not emotional intelligence although people might confuse it that it's actually more about self-awareness and consciousness of the impact that they have um, in a behavioral way um, how is my behavior impacted uh, how do I be above the line in my behaviors and below the line because we're all completely flawed um, and so, you know, when do I, I gave this example the other day of, um, I was in a leadership meeting with, um, with some people I was talking of, and this very courageous leader was talking around, um, how he feels that sometimes in meetings, um, people don't, people aren't listening, they may be shuffling their papers or on their phones and, um, he felt quite ignored and I'm like listening, I'm going, yeah, this sounds really tough and I'm thinking, brilliant, I'm glad that he's saying this. And then he's saying, um, you know, I feel like um, what I'm saying might not be as important as what other people, blah, blah, blah. He's going on and on. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, brilliant. This is excellent. 
Anyway, and as he's talking, I remember the night before with my husband in the kitchen, and we've got three kids, so by the time we put them to bed, really I've got like nothing left in the tank. And he's talking to me in the kitchen, and I am being as noisy as I can possibly be, putting stuff away in the kitchen and shutting the door and opening the door in the fridge and putting the dishwasher stuff in because I really just don't want to talk to him. But I'm not kind of brave enough to say, I really don't want to talk to you now. I'm just doing everything that I can possibly do to non-verbally express to him that I've got zero patience or tolerance or capability to listen to him. Anyway, so sort of as I'm talking to this leader, sort of, you know, I sort of have this um, memory of me the night before and I just thought, you know, we all do it. You know, we all send these non-verbals that we're not quite up for the conversation or um, we're not as interested in their perspective as our own. So uh, I think there's just a big call for all of us to... um, to take responsibility for activating the best version of us. Um, so that's my second point. Um, and the third point is to take responsibility for acting, to take responsibility for activating the best of other people. So if I know that something winds somebody up, um, what am I going to do about that? Am I going to modify my behavior or am I going to just kind of go, well, that you know they are you know it's their problem uh well me kind of thinking it's their problem doesn't help me get the best out of that person um do i understand that i'm going to be intimidating for some people um and that in order for me to get the best out of them i need to help them feel relaxed capable you know that i'm inclusive that i might need to listen doubly hard um to uh, and stay curious so um And can I do anything and take responsibility for building trust? So trust is a really tricky thing, um, but often requires a risk on our part if we want to build trust, uh, rather than sitting back and waiting for the other person to to show that they're capable of receiving our trust. We actually have to go first, uh, which is a bit of a risk. Uh, Are we prepared to do that for the sake of um, what we can do together? Um, And... Can I, can I go first? Can I make the bigger risk? Uh, can I go back again if I've been burnt? What responsibility for actually building trust with each individual can I, can I take? Awesome. That's an, that's an incredible list. And I feel like, you know, that I can almost see that in my head as being a, a little kind of, um, it's almost like a, a pebble, isn't it, in, in the water. And as it drops, it kind of starts with yourself and it resonates out with your team members and it becomes about the team goal. And then, you, as you said, you get those viral networks going. And I, I love that idea. I mean, in, in some sense, I can almost see this group get being a little bit like that. Hopefully we've developed some trust here and maybe these are little little pieces that offshoot into organisations around. And I, and I hope that's, you know, kind of taken from the, the information you've shared. Thank you, Amy. I think that was really insightful and it was really interesting to think about it too, as we said, from a a mental health perspective, because I do think if people feel safe enough to go to work, you know, as themselves and bring themselves to work, and we know it's sort of one in five, one in six come to work, you know, experiencing mental distress at some time. And if we can go in and be ourselves, but still flourish in that environment, feel supported, and as you say, feel like we can take risks and and contribute, then I can only think that that's a much more positive space you know, to be in for the individual, the team and the organisation and our communities you know, probably as well.
Thanks again for listening today. It's been great to have you along. If you're keen to join the Wellness Champions Network, head along to myhealthrevolution.co.nz and follow the links to subscribe. If you're in the network, thanks again, and we look forward to catching up with you really soon.